Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Maureen Letty, Director of the Office of Climate Change at the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Maureen is graciously joining me today to discuss the final scoping plan approved by the state's Climate Action Council on December 19th, 2022. The plan represents the culmination of years of work defining how one of the country's largest states, in economic terms, will meet its very ambitious decarbonization goals. Stay with us. Hi, Maureen. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today here on Resources Radio. It's really a a pleasure to have you joining us. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, before we get to the meat of today's discussion, we always like to learn a little bit more about our guests here on Resources Radio. So can I ask you to share just a bit about your background and how you ended up working on environment and climate issues? Yeah, sure. So I started my career in sort of garden variety environmental consulting. Um, I'm a native New Yorker, but lived out in uh, the Bay Area in California for a number of years. And um, when my daughter was born, I wanted to come back home. And I started working here for the state of New York at the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, working on renewable energy projects. And when the Climate Act was passed, actually, in 2019, just serendipitously, this position of the director of the Climate Office opened up at uh, the DEC, the Department of Environmental Conservation. And it was such a, you know, such a serendipitous moment for this role that would be so uh, important in implementing the Climate Act. And uh, it just was an opportunity I just couldn't resist. I loved my work at NYSERDA, but I went for it and and got this role. And I've been spending the last over three years working on the Climate Act. And it's been wonderful. That's great. That's great. Um, Well, yeah, we've, I think we've both referenced this, you know, the the work that's been ongoing has been um, years, literally years in the making at this point, including the kind of from the passage of the Climate Act, which you referenced, until now, when the scoping plan has been released. So can you can you take us back in time just a little bit, though, for folks who might not be as familiar with how the evolution of the, the policy has happened in New York State? Um, take us back in time to kind of the creation of this Climate Action Council. That's the group that passed the scoping plan on December 19th. And just say a little bit about how it began, its legislative origins, and, and also its mandate. Climate change legislation was introduced in New York back in 2016. Obviously, that legislation has gone through many changes over time, but that version did include the concepts of a Climate Action Council and a scoping plan and the emission limits, which are the reductions in emissions that the law requires. So the the legislation that was eventually passed back in 2019 was the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. We refer to it as the Climate Act. And that law did create a statutory body, a Climate Action Council, whose primary task was to adopt a scoping plan. And the scoping plan is the bundle of strategies that will achieve the emissions reduction requirements in the law. The law requires that New York State reduce its greenhouse gas emissions from a 1990 baseline, 40% by 2030 and 85% by 2050, with a goal of a net zero economy in 2050. 
So that scoping plan is meant to achieve those those limits. And New York is also unique in the fact that we use different accounting, which makes our emissions reductions uh, more stringent than are seen in other places. There is a focus on methane by looking at a 20-year global warming potential. The law requires that. So that's really relative how you relate uh, carbon dioxide to other greenhouse gases. And methane is a what we call a short-lived climate pollutant. So it has a big effect in a short time, but over a 100-year time span, it's far less pronounced. So when we look at a 20-year time span, the, uh, the impact of methane is greatly exaggerated. So that puts a lot of emphasis on natural gas. It puts a lot of emphasis on waste management. And we also look at other types of emissions that other jurisdictions don't include, such as upstream emissions from the, uh, the extraction and the transportation of fossil fuels that are ultimately combusted within the state. Typically, jurisdictions look at what is within their borders and not beyond. So that makes our emission limits very ambitious to achieve. So the council itself is a 22-member body. There's 12 agency heads and 10 appointees. The, the chairs of the council are the leadership of NYSERDA and the Department of Environmental Conservation. NYSERDA is the Energy Research um, Development Authority that I mentioned earlier. So that's the President and CEO of the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority and the Commissioner of the Department of Environmental Conservation. Um, the Climate Act also directed the creation of advisory panels that would support the Council. There are six sector-specific panels named in the law, transportation, land use and local government, agriculture and forestry, housing and energy efficiency, energy intensive and trade exposed industries, and power generation. So these are sectoral experts that will provide recommendations to the council on emissions reduction strategies pertinent to those sectors. The law also required that the council stand up a just transition working group that had a bunch of responsibilities, but in this context, they were advisors to the council on workforce and labor considerations of the recommendations that would go into that plan. Hmm. Okay. So a, a pretty wide range of stakeholder perspectives then by design that was really both in the composition of the council itself, but also, as you noted, you know, a number of different advisory perspectives coming together. Were there any other ways that the council kind of worked to gather stakeholder perspectives as they were drafting the scoping plan? Well, one thing to ensure that we include in the last question was that the council itself recognized a deficiency in the law and added a seventh advisory panel on waste management. So what, that was one of their very early actions was to say, this is a topic area that requires its own group of experts. Um, and they, you know, they made that decision to add an additional advisory panel and then to impanel all of those so they could start their work on, on pulling together the recommendations. So the law does put all of these diverse perspectives together and uh, there was a big focus on gathering uh, stakeholder feedback on the work throughout the entire process. So the, the 12 agency heads on the council are energy agencies, housing, health, transportation, agriculture, labor, economic development. The legislative appointments were people that represented the fossil fuel industry, renewable energy, environmental concerns, EJ concerns, and again, more labor. So all of those perspectives are at the table in developing this plan that can address the complexity of the transition that the law envisioned. So the advisory panels had a stakeholder input process by which they 
worked with their stakeholders and the general public to receive feedback on their work. The council has had a website ever since the beginning where the public can sign up for uh, emails to stay in the loop on on activities and developments. They can provide feedback. The council has always received feedback. And um, the public can look at all of the council meetings, all the advisory panel meetings, all of the analytical work, everything that was fed into the process of the developing the plan. That's all available on the website, you know, making sure that the public had access to all the information throughout the entire process. So the advisory panels got stakeholder feedback as they developed their recommendations. They held public meetings. They took feedback in. They had roundtables. Topical experts were brought to present to the council at a number of the council's meetings. The council held a focused session on reliability and brought in experts to, you know, to help inform them on issues around reliability. And then there was a climate justice working group that the law also created, and they provided their feedback to the Climate Action Council on the recommendations from the advisory panels. And all of this feedback and more was built into the draft plan that was released at the end of 2021. And then the law required a public comment process on the draft plan. So we held a six-month public comment process in 2022. The council held 13 hearings where they received testimony, and they have over 35,000 written comments and testimony that came through that public comment process. And all that information was, was read, and it was summarized, it was presented to the council. All those public comments are also available on the Climate Act website. So quite a large body of stakeholder and public input that fed into what ultimately was the final plan released at the end of last year. Yeah. I'm, and I'm really grateful to sort of spend a little bit of time talking to you about the process because many of my colleagues here at RFF have emphasized that um, the outcome is critical, of course, but the process really matters for the durability of the, you know, the decisions that are made. And so, um, so yeah, it's great to hear a little bit more about the level of effort that went into that um, gathering of stakeholder perspectives. Um, But I do want to turn at this point and kind of pivot and talk about the final scoping plan itself which includes proposals designed to reduce emissions from really from all major sectors of the economy. And um, my understanding is that the two highest emitting sectors in New York State are the building sector and the transportation sector. Um, So if I've got that right, maybe we can start with those two. And in particular, if you can say a little bit more about what the action plan proposes for dealing with the emissions from those sectors. Yes, you definitely did get that right transportation and and buildings are the two largest sectors in terms of our our annual emissions here in New York. And the plan leans heavily on energy efficiency and end-use electrification in transportation and buildings. So it's looking at modeling approximately 1 to 2 million efficient homes electrified with heat pumps by 2030, 3 million zero-emission vehicles needed by 2030. But as you mentioned, achieving those limits, those emissions reductions, requires actions in all sectors. Um, So every sector will see significant transformation over the next decade and beyond, and that's going to require critical investments in New York's economy. So, and it's all interlinked too, right? Like 
if we're going to have um, end-use electrification in order to reduce emissions in transportation and buildings, then we need to think about how that interplays with our electric sector and the ability to deliver that electricity, the ability to deal with dynamic load shifting, the ability to switch to a, a winter peaking from a summer peaking, which is our current, you know, our current profile now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's a great pivot back to the power sector, which. Yeah, which is foundational to so many of the changes you just described, this kind of clean up the grid, then electrify as much as possible perspective. And uh, I just I did want to ask, too, I, I understand that, you know, the the final scoping plan was sort of overwhelmingly passed by the council, but there were three no votes for the final plan. And from the bits that I've read about it, it seems like those did have to do with concerns about stress on the power grid as we as we electrify more things. Um, have we made the grid resilient to that increased demand. So can you say just a little bit more about, you know, those concerns? And you mentioned a few things that the state kind of has to take a take a hard look at uh, in order to ensure this kind of sufficient, reliable supply of electricity. But are there other measures that the state is really focused on? Sure. To reduce emissions through end use electrification is contingent upon that electricity being clean, zero emissions. And the law also has a requirement that the electricity sector has zero emissions electricity by 2040. So they're hand in hand, right? So we're, we're cleaning up the grid and we're electrifying everything. And there is ensuring reliability of the electrical grid. It's, it's a core concept in the Climate Act. It's core to the scoping plan as well. The state has done a lot of planning and analysis on looking at how do we achieve that emissions free by 2040 and modeling different scenarios in terms of the reliability of the electric system as it pertains to all this end-use electrification. You know, measuring the the ability of the system to carry all this load using renewables and storage and assessing their reliability contributions over hundreds of years and potential weather conditions. So looking at all these different permutations of things that could potentially happen in this new scenario of a clean grid that's highly and a highly electrified um, economy. So they're trying to capture, you know, the changes of solar generation and the interactive effects between these resources and um, pulling together a least cost mix of resources to meet the energy needs while meeting statewide and local capacity requirements. So, you know, we, we need to model that reliability and we have done that. The, the scoping plan did a lot of modeling of, of reliability. Is distributed energy resources certainly play a large role and energy storage on-site renewables that are able to operate independent of the grid for resilience benefits. Um, so it's it's really looking at a well-planned strategic transition from our existing system and coordinating across numerous sectors, integrating that planning to build out that local electric transmission and distribution system to meet the anticipated increases on the grid and that demand throughout the state. So it's a it's a transition over time. It's it's going to require investment in planning and the state's taking action on that. There are investments in renewable energy projects, there's massive investments in transmission infrastructure. So yes, um, reliability is core and key. And and also looking at how do we manage the demand side, right? Like how do we reduce demand through uh, building in energy systems, solution development demonstration projects, uh, 
you know, electric vehicle battery interactive capabilities with buildings and on-site storage, the use of alternative fuels such as hydrogen, really tracking the technology there and how that can help contribute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it really does sound like all options are on on the table for New York State. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned renewables and battery storage. Are there any other clean energy assets that New York also brings to the table? And I, I suppose I'm asking kind of a leading question, but I talked in the past with folks in Ithaca who have, I think, quite literally tapped into geothermal as a source of energy in New York State. Are there sort of special assets that New York has available to it as well that can can help with this transition? Sure. I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind is all of the work New York is doing in offshore wind development. We are very fortunate in our geography that there is an excellent offshore wind resource that is very conveniently located right near our load centers. So New York City and Long Island, which are the largest you know, energy consumers in the state, are, are positioned well to benefit from, from offshore wind. And the state has been doing work to, you know, to make that happen for years now. And there's very positive work on the federal side, too, that's, that's super helpful in getting New York and, and a lot of eastern states to get offshore wind up and running. There is also a direction to develop thermal energy networks, like what you mentioned in Ithaca. The uh, Public Service Commission put out an order requiring the Department of Public Service to uh, create pathways for utility companies to become thermal energy providers to, you know, to build out thermal energy networks that then can provide um, geothermal ground source heat pump, you know, to district heating systems, let's say, and have, it's another area of service that they can provide. That's a clean energy service that they can provide to their customers. Hmm, really interesting. And Maureen, I just wanted to ask one more follow-up on that. You mentioned the federal level, and I'm I'm curious whether investments through recent legislation, like the Inflation Reduction Act, are those going to facilitate some of these changes? Do those make resources available for you as a state that will actually help you kind of achieve your goals? Yeah, absolutely. Earlier in this process, um, that was a major concern was the, you know, the lack of action on the federal level. And these new recent laws that are bringing a lot of funding are really important to New York. We, you know, we, we modeled pretty significant cost reductions for our transition because of these actions on the federal level. So we are very actively watching and pursuing those opportunities and um, hope to see more, hope to see more action on the federal level. Interesting. All right. Well, I want to make sure that I cover what is perhaps the biggest news in the plan, um, if that's a fair characterization, which was the recommendation of a uh, a cap and invest program, a so-called cap and invest program that will cover really all sectors of the state economy. And I, I take it this was somewhat of a surprise, as I think folks who had been watching the process unfold hadn't really been expecting the council to include that kind of recommendation. And so I wanted to ask you a bit about that and and your sense of, of why that cap and invest proposal was kind of ultimately included. And why is it an important complement to the other recommendations that are in the plan? When the draft scoping plan was released in 2021, the council recognized that it was not complete, that the public comment process was incredibly important, and there were key open issues that they knew they needed to work on throughout 2022. And the role of the an economy-wide policy was one of those open questions. The draft plan includes options, different things the council could recommend for an economy-wide 
policy. So the council did work on this topic in 2022. They had a lot of deliberations around it. They used the public comment process on the options presented in the draft to help inform their decisions as well. And they ultimately landed on recommending a cap and invest program. And as one of the CAC members, Ann Reynolds, said, the cap and invest recommendation answers two fundamental questions. One being, how can we be sure that we will achieve the reductions? And the second one being, how are we going to pay for it? So to ensure compliance with the emission limits for 2030 and 2050, there would be a cap set, a declining enforceable cap through regulation. And then um, those emissions allowances for the entities that are regulated under that cap would be made available through an auction mechanism and the revenues received through that auction mechanism would be reinvested back into all of the clean energy technologies that we need to see happen in order to achieve the limits. So the governor did direct DEC and NYSERDA to start working on that cap and invest program in her state of the state back in January of of 2023. So um, the council did quite a bit of work in developing that in the final plan and discussing it with EJ communities that have concerns around market-based emissions trading. And then there, we are kicking off, you know, we talked a lot about stakeholder engagement and the stakeholder engagement into the scoping plan is really just the beginning. All of the implementing actions that come out of the scoping plan need to go through a process like a regulatory or programmatic development process that includes a lot of stakeholder outreach. So we are in, you know, getting our feet underneath us to push forward with a pretty robust stakeholder engagement process on the development of the cap and invest regulations. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And, and I feel like I've certainly tried to kind of choose my words carefully in our discussion. And, and you've certainly been using the terms proposals and recommendations in talking about the plan. And that's something that I think is worth calling out. It was something that I really had to refresh my own memory on, too, is that, you know, the elements in this plan are not binding. They are not laws on the books. Um, they obviously have been extremely well considered and thought out. Um, but there is another step that needs to happen now between moving from this final scoping plans recommendations to really getting those things on the, on the book. So can you say just a little bit more about um, what happens next? Sure. So it's, it's true. The scoping plan is not a legally binding document, but the climate act includes a provision that DEC has to promulgate regulations by the end of 2023 that ensure the achievement of the emissions limits to ensure the emission limits are met. And those regulations must be drawn from the scoping plan. You know, they must draw from the scoping plan. So that is an important provision to ensure that plan is acted upon. There are lots of recommendations in the scoping plan that involve some sort of regulatory action, not only by the Department of Environmental Conservation, but other agencies. Um, This cap and invest regulation being a very big one, very complex, we assume, that there'll be a lot of interest, there'll be a lot of comment on it, you know, it's going to be a a big effort for the state to take on this year. So we're looking at all the other regulations that are in that plan through the broad group of agencies that have been involved in this process and really trying to create a plan that manages our time and resources effectively to implement all of those things, you know, in a one-year, five-year, three-year lookout. The plan also has to go for 
a, a refresh every five years. So in five years time, a revised scoping plan will be created to help reflect all the changes that have happened in the world. Technological changes, you know, things are going to change that we just can't foresee. Um, the, the plan also has a lot of legislative actions. So, you know, there's a lot for the legislature to do as well. Really interesting. And I think that's a good lead into my really my last kind of substantive question for you about this topic, which is, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of work, there is a lot of work to do moving forward. Um, and it's time bound. So <laughs> I'm always I'm always thinking about, you know, you've got one year to do this kind of massive project here. So maybe I've answered my own question, which is, you know, what are the what are the really the biggest challenges here? I'm sure one of them is just time constraints. But, you know, really, what's going to hold this back from being as successful as everyone wants it to be? But then I also want to ask the positive side of that. What are what are really the opportunities here as the process moves forward? Um, what is the greatest promise as the state continues its decarbonization journey? So the, the cap and invest program, the governor's support to, to advance that as an early action out of the scoping plan is very, very promising, right? That's, that gives us a lot of great direction to move forward. We know the stakeholder process for that it needs to be very, very thorough, right? Like we need, there's going to be a variety of workshops, consultation, um, community organizations, labor unions, municipalities, the environmental justice community. So we have a year. That's a lot of people we need to talk to. That's a lot of perspective that we need to pull in. So managing that process and making sure that all those voices are heard and we are able to take all that information in and incorporate it into the regulation development in a year, you know, is, is going to be challenging. So we're, you know, we're really, really glad that we are starting working on this from, you know, from the get-go in, in January. Um, so that's, that's going to be challenging. That's going to be challenging to meet that timeline, but we are certainly going to put all our effort in to do it. The other thing that is, I think, pretty unique about the scoping plan is there is a strong recommendation about a planning process to transition away from the use of natural gas. And this is an area where, you know, New York doesn't really have a long history of analysis and planning to inform decision making like we do for the electricity sector or transportation. Those are areas that we have been working on for a number of years. We know a lot about what it takes to, you know, to transition to those, you know, those industries. And we've been, we've been doing it, right? There's been a renewable portfolio standard in New York since the early 2000s. We have a lot of history there. And we also don't have a lot of examples from other states or jurisdictions that have downsized or transitioned out of natural gas usage. So we're a bit out in front on this one, which is which is good. We can we can be a leader there, but it also we have a lot of interesting work that we need to do in this space to model how these interplays between these the energy system on the electricity side and the natural gas side how when we are reducing natural gas use relative to increasing electricity use and the interplay of the energy efficiency improvements and innovations like so there's there's a lot of interesting work that needs to be done there where we are really tackling a new transition and something that needs to happen probably on a much quicker time scale than we have seen in the past for other sectors hmm. Really interesting. Never, never a dull moment. It sounds like there's always <laughs> something to be moving forward and innovating on. So right, and innovation is a really important part too, right? Like we're really tracking very closely what's going on with green hydrogen and long duration storage. They hold a lot of promise to you know to help with that transition, to help with the reliability concerns we talked about earlier. 
So innovation is going to play a large role as well. There's a lot of investment uh, research and development that are priorities for the state there. Yeah. Well, fantastic. I It's really nice to hear about um, progress always on these very challenging issues. But but as I mentioned earlier, um, it's it's really nice to hear about the process too and kind of the, the thought and the work that went into to pulling this all together. I think there are lots of lessons to be learned from that as well. So as I said, watch this space. Um, it sounds like there's going to be much more to come, certainly given the importance of the New York state uh, economy, um, its leadership in this area. I, I know that we at RFF will certainly be keeping an eye on the state's actions over the next year and then beyond. So it's really great to have this chance to to hear a little bit more from you about about the plans. Well, great. It's been excellent talking with you. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours. There's... We could. I'm sure my colleagues are very jealous of me right now that I have you on the line where I can ask you questions. But um, but since we're at the end of time, I do want to close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. So Maureen, what's on the top of your stack that you might want to recommend to our listeners? It can be about this topic or it can be more general. Well, I mean, I'm always interested in following the trends and what's happening with um with these big uh, innovation spaces here in New York with what's going on with offshore wind and what's happening with, with hydrogen development and looking to, um, to Europe where they are, you know, seems like they're a bit ahead of us in terms of that development and how we can learn from those. Um, trying not to always be focused on energy issues and climate issues <laughs> in my life either. <laughs> this was actually a tough question for me, to be honest with you. But yep, so love the, you know, the Energy Gang podcast. Um, love tracking what's happening with offshore wind. And um, just generally love uh, learning about economics and have wor- enjoyed working with RFF, to be honest with you. RFF supported our value of carbon guidance that the DEC put out that was kind of fundamental to the cost-benefit work that was done um, to support the scoping plan, you know, which showed all of the really high level of benefit of action on climate. Um, the cost of, of action far, far exceeds um, the cost of inaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe we can just consider that RFF is at the top of your stack. Okay, no. <laughs> that might be that might be a little uh, self-serving on my part, but but it's great. It's always nice to hear about um, when you know. Obviously, New York has a long history of including analysis in its rulemaking, but we're we're very pleased to have been a, a part of that over time too. Oh so. yes, and you know RFF has that expertise when looking at Cap and Invest and all sorts of other programs like that. We always um, appreciate. RFF's expertise and and expert opinion on those items. (laughs) Well, thanks. I will pass that on to my very talented colleagues. So, Um, well, again, Maureen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. And I look forward to hearing more about your work over the next period of time. Well, thanks. It was great talking with you. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. 
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.